0: When I first went to Israel, I was very disappointed. It sounds unusual to say that because I had always anticipated going there. I thought, truly, this has got to be one of the greatest experiences. I'm sure I'm going to feel so close to God, I'll probably feel extra close to God. After all, it's a local call in Israel when you pray. You know, that's where God lives. No long distance charges, you're right there. And so I went and I remember one evening sitting in the Garden of Gethsemane and I was alone. This is the first time I was there. and I was waiting for that feeling to come over me. Oh, This is going to be it. This is going to be the greatest experiences I've, I've heard people talk about their experiences in Israel, you know, that you know, they got goosebumps and it, it was like a different kind of an experience. So I was waiting for it and it never happened. And I was so disappointed. It wasn't any different than when I was having quiet time in my apartment in Santa Ana or when I would work at the hospital. Times where I really experienced the closeness of God, I experienced it in Israel, but not any greater than I would anywhere else. So I came back home and was sitting one night in my apartment with my Bible open and having a great time of prayer, worshiping the Lord, and I sensed in just the normal life. The extraordinary presence of God. And it was as if God was speaking to me that He wants to be a part of absolutely everything in my life, not just special moments or special places. We talk about holy places. And if you go to Israel, they'll show you holy sites, the holy land. Of course, that's under controversy. You'll have one. Groups say, this is where Jesus did this. And another group will say, no, he didn't do it there. He did it over here. This is the property we own. This is the holy place. There are no holy places. There's holy people. God dwells within his people. And God does have a plan for that nation. But my disappointment turned into joy when I realized that God wanted to be a part of just normal everyday life to draw close to me. And so the feasts of Israel, as outlined in chapter 23, revolve around normal everyday work life. The agricultural year of Israel is tied to these feasts. Wherever they would work, when they would bring in the sheaf, when they would bring in the grain, the barley, the wheat, the first fruits, and at different times of the year, however they would work in Israel, festivals were tied into it. God was saying, I want to be a part of Every area of your life. I'll tell you, I've shared it before, but when I discovered that truth, it liberated me. I thought, surely God is really interested in me tonight. I'm in church. He's pleased. I mean, this is where God hangs out. My Bible open, my face lifted toward heaven. Oh, God is certainly pleased with me now. And when I realized that God would draw as close to me. When I was catching a four to five foot wave off Huntington Pier, as he was in church, I could draw near at that point, it, it was great. God wanted to be a part of everything. And I love God to be a part of every avenue of my life. I want to know that wherever I go, God is there. Now. Mondays are generally my day off. I don't always take them off, but tomorrow I plan to go snowboarding. And it's going to be a holy time. It's going to be a blast. We're going to rip up the slopes. But I plan to invite God along. I'm going to ask Him for great conditions, I'm going to ask Him for powder. I'm going to ask him for wisdom to negotiate the trees, the slopes, for good fellowship with the friends I go with. I'm going to bring his word. I'm going to read it on the way up the chairlift. And even in a time like that, revolve life around God and his word and the fellowship of his saints. It's going to be a glorious experience. It's going to be great. So you pray for us. Now, we started in chapter 23 last time we met in Leviticus. We left off with speaking about the Sabbath. I'm just going to read through it. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, The feasts of the Lord, which you shall proclaim to be holy convocations, these are my feasts. And then the Sabbath is given six days shall work be done, but the seventh is the Sabbath, a solemn rest, a holy convocation. You shall do no work in it. It is the Sabbath of the Lord in all of your dwellings. Then God outlines the feasts of Israel. And uh, seven are given, eight if you include another one, but there's really seven feasts of Israel. Um, there were three feasts that were called pilgrim feasts, that is, If you were a male living within a certain proximity of the city of Jerusalem, it was required that you show up in Jerusalem for those feasts. You couldn't just celebrate them at home. The first was Passover, and it was the hope of every Jew, not just those who lived in the area, but in any country, to celebrate at least once in their life Passover in Jerusalem. And at the end of every Passover feast to this day, the Jew will say, next year in Jerusalem, hoping that one day he'll be able to celebrate that sacred feast, the feast of all feasts, at his home in Jerusalem. That's the Passover, the Pesach, as they call it. The second feast is the feast Shavuot, the Feast of Weeks, or Pentecost, outlined also in chapter 23. And that was one of the pilgrim feasts. You had to travel to Jerusalem to keep it. And then finally there was Sukkot, or the Feast of Booths, Tabernacles. And that was in the uh, fall of the year, around October, our October. It was the seventh Jewish month, the month of Tishri. But the first month of the year was the month that the Passover was celebrated in. These are the feasts of the Lord, holy convocations which you shall proclaim at their appointed times. On the fourteenth day of the first month, the twilight, is the Lord's Passover. On the fourteenth day of the first month, oh, I already read that. On the fifteenth day of the same month is the Feast of Unleavened Bread to the Lord. Seven days you must eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall have a holy convocation, or gathering. You shall do no customary work on it. But you shall offer an offering made by fire to the Lord for seven days. The seventh day shall be a holy convocation. You shall do no customary work in it. It's interesting that the Sabbath is given before Passover as a listing of the feast. God calls it a holy convocation. Indeed it is. I mentioned last time we met that it is an experience to have Shabbat, Sabbath, uh, on Friday evening and Saturday, especially with the Jewish family. And I might recommend to you that if you have the opportunity to go to the Zion connection, uh, Steve Fenchel and his wife will show you how Shabbat is celebrated and all of the meaning behind it. But it was the rabbis who said to celebrate Sabbath correctly is a foretaste of the world to come because you have such warm fellowship, a great meal a time to hang out and really rest and relax with people that you love. It's a foretaste of the world to come. And as we mentioned last time, Friday evening before the twilight, two candles are lit in Jewish homes for two reasons. One is that in ancient times there were two rooms, typically in an Israeli home. And on normal nights of the week you would light one candle and you would carry the candle from room to room, depending on what you were doing after nightfall. You'd carry it from room to room to see something, to get something, to conduct business, to put the kids to bed. You'd have one candle and you'd carry it. Since you couldn't do any work on the Sabbath, you couldn't carry a candle. You couldn't bear a burden. So two candles were lit, one for one room, one for the other room, and they were left on through the night. Another reason that two candles were given is because there were two commandments for the Sabbath that were given to the children of Israel. One you shall remember the Sabbath of the Lord your God, and one you shall observe the Sabbath to keep it. Two commandments to the children of Israel, thus two candles. And so you welcome the Sabbath in as a time of rest by lighting the two candles. And as it says here, it's a holy convocation. Now the Sabbath began in Genesis. Before the law was given, mind you, before the children of Israel even got into the land, the Sabbath was established from creation. For it says, six days did God create the heavens and the earth. On the seventh day, God rested, not because he was tired, but because he was done. He was finished. He'd created it all. And the Lord sanctified or set apart the seventh day. He blessed it and he set it apart from creation. We really don't hear about it again until the children of Israel are in the wilderness. And again, before the law was given, they had left Egypt. The Red Sea had swallowed up the Egyptian army. And now they're traveling from the area of Elim in the wilderness to Sinai. On the way there, the children of Israel grumble. They were good at that they had it down to an art by this time. And it was the mixed multitude that started grumbling because they didn't have the same kind of food that they had in Egypt. Oh, we remembered all the good things of Egypt, right, when you were slaves and beat up, right? It's funny how you don't remember the bad things of the past, of the world, but you remember how good it was. Satan blinds you from the true condition. And that caused the rest of the children of Israel to complain. So God says, Moses said, God hears your complaints. You know, what are you complaining to me for? Who am I? I'm just a dude. I'm just a man. You're really complaining against God. And God said, tomorrow in the morning you're going to wake up, Moses, and the whole congregation of Israel is going to see an unusual sight. There's going to be white stuff all over. It's going to look like coriander seed. It'll have a white look to it with a uh, kind of an amber hue. A gum-like kind of a consistency. You'll be able to bake with it, boil it, and that will be your food. You'll wake up and it'll just be there. The children of Israel the next day got up, looked outside, and they saw this stuff on the ground. And they said, what is it? And the term manna is a configuration of two terms. It's a transliteration, and it means what is it? In Israel today you'd say, "maze." what is this? But in ancient Hebrew two terms came together and it was called "mana." what is it? That's what they did. What is it? You know, that's a good name. And they were able to to do anything with manna. You know, they could have it for breakfast, they could have maybe cereal, put a little milk on it, they could boil it, they could bake it, could have bamana bread. manna and all sorts of uses for manna were available. But God said, and this is where it was introduced, the Sabbath, tell the children of Israel for six days they can go out and pick it up, but just get enough for one day each day. You have to go out every single day and pick it up. In other words, you can't go out with a huge wheelbarrow and get enough for a week and take it home and just store it in boxes. You have to get it every single day, manna. Now there was a guy who thought he could outsmart God, and he got a little bit more than his share, and left it overnight for the next day, and it bred worms and started stinking up his house. Didn't work to outsmart God, so they were confined to picking it up every morning. However, on Friday, the sixth day, God said, go out and get twice as much. More than you need for today, get enough for today and tomorrow, which is the Sabbath. For tomorrow is a holy day throughout your generations. You will do no work, you will not get manna, there won't even be any manna tomorrow. I'm not going to even send it to you, so get enough. And miraculously, though it would breed worms and stink if you kept it any other day overnight, it wouldn't do it on Friday night. And that's where God sanctified again for the children of Israel the Sabbath. Then when he gave the law, Through Moses at Mount Sinai, the Sabbath was given for Israel as a perpetual memorial throughout all of their generations. And so, as a holy convocation sort of to start it off, the Sabbath is offered in the list of feasts. Passover, you remember Passover, Exodus chapter 12, God passed over the homes of the children of Israel because they put the blood of the lamb on the doorposts and the lintels of their homes in Egypt. The death angel passed over the homes of those who applied blood to it, and the tenth plague, the death of the firstborn, hit the Egyptians, but not those who applied the blood. That's found in Exodus chapter 12. If you were to go to Israel today, one of the hardest times for you to go would be Passover. It'd be hard for you to find a hotel room. It'd be hard for you to find a family who had a room in their house. It's estimated that in modern Israel ninety-nine percent of modern Israelis keep the Passover. Ninety-nine percent of the entire nation. During the Passover festival, the Days of Unleavened Bread that we'll read about, and we've read about actually, in Passover, they keep kosher law. Eighty-two percent of the entire population keeps kosher law. That is, they eat only prescribed foods from the Bible. They will eat no unprescribed foods. That's 82 percent. As opposed to 44 percent of the population keeps kosher law around the year. So at Passover it really they get really holy and they keep kosher law and 99 percent of the Israeli population keeps some form of Passover feast. Now. Passover, even in ancient times, was very popular. It was commanded for everybody to keep it. But the Roman historian Tacitus, as well as the Jewish historian hired by the Romans, Flavius Josephus, wrote an interesting article how that in 65 AD so many people in Israel were keeping the Passover five years before the destruction of the temple that in Jerusalem alone there were three million people keeping the passover which is astonishing for a town of about 200,000 which means people came from all over and swelled Jerusalem they would sleep on the mount of olives in the Kidron valley over in Bethany Bethphage all around camping in tents staying with friends staying in inns if there were any room as just to get in and to celebrate the passover as we read here it was kept on the fourteenth day of the first month, that is, the fourteenth of Nisan, not the car, the month. The first month of the religious year was Nisan or called in the Babylonian calendar Abib. On the tenth day of the month, the children of Israel took their lamb, which I find kind of interesting. that. Four days before they slaughtered it, they would select a lamb without spot or blemish and then bring it home. Which meant it would be more painful to slaughter the lamb, don't you think? Especially if you have kids. That cute little lamb, you get attached to it. You get up in the morning, it's running around, the kids play with it, and it's like a little pet. But on the fourteenth day of the month, that lamb was taken out and slaughtered, roasted, and it was eaten. And no less than 10 people were at that Passover Seder feast in Israel. You had to have at least 10 people or more to slaughter a lamb. So if your family was small, you get together with another family or friends from out of town. And on the 14th day of the month, as it says in verse 5, at twilight, It is the Lord's Passover. Now, notice that verses 4 through 8 speak about two feasts, Passover and a feast called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. These are two separate feasts that actually became one eventually. At least they are seen as one. And it was simply called Passover season. And since people came from all over and came into Jerusalem, if they could, at Passover, they would stay for the Feast of Unleavened Bread. The feasts were sort of back-to-back. And so, as the Jews saw it, it was a combination of two feasts, Passover season, what they called Chag HaPesach, or the celebration of the Paschal Lamb, and then Chag HaMatzot, or the celebration of eating unleavened bread. Now, this is what they did. Before the Passover, there was the search for the chametz, the leaven. Leaven was evil to be purged out of the house, you're to celebrate it without any leaven. Quite a ceremony. The family really got in on it. A candle was lit and at nighttime you'd go through the house with your kids and you'd search for leaven, any breadcrumbs that might be around. You'd open up drawers, cupboards, you'd shake your clothes and you'd scrape it all up and take it out and dispose of it. It became such a ritual. That if in your home you saw a mouse streak across the floor, you would be terrorized because that mouse may have a breadcrumb in its possession and as it goes into its hole, it might have that piece of leaven. And woe unto you because your house may now be cursed because now there's leaven in it and you cannot keep Passover with leaven. They would purge it out of their home. That's the feast of unleavened bread. Now leaven is a symbol of evil. It's always, in the Scripture, a symbol of evil. Jesus gave an interesting parable that I think is often misinterpreted, let me explain why. In Matthew 13, he gives kingdom parables. He says, the kingdom of heaven is like a woman who put leaven and hid it in three measures of meal until the whole thing was leavened. Traditionally, that's been interpreted this way. They said, the gospel has permeating power, conquering power. And even as leaven, yeast, gets into bread, and if you put it in one corner, it will work its way through the whole batch of dough. The gospel will one day conquer all of the world and be victorious. It will permeate through all the world, and eventually all the world will come under its influence and domain, and the world will be saved. I don't think so. I don't think Jesus ever foresaw that as happening. The Jews always saw leaven is evil, no leaven for the feasts, all of them. You don't bring leaven when you offer a sacrifice to God except one feast only and that is Pentecost and you'll see why in a moment. You take leaven out for the feasts, for the offerings you purge it from your home at Passover. You have a whole festival devoted to unleavened bread. In the Talmud, one of the rabbis said that leaven represented evil affections and naughtiness. They've always seen it as evil. Jesus said, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is what? Hypocrisy. He even saw it as false teaching. Galatians calls leaven false teaching. Paul talks about purging out the old leaven and having a new lump, purging out sin out of your midst. It was always seen as evil. I don't think Jesus, as he looked throughout history in the future, ever predicted a perfect church, but a church riddled with its problems, its divisions, filled with imperfect men and women. He gave another parable very very much like it, the mustard seed and so forth. And we have those teachings on tape. We won't get into that because we'll digress from it. But, leaven was purged out of the house. It's a symbol of evil. Now, unleavened bread was the bread that in Egypt the children of Israel were commanded to bake the night they were leaving Egypt because they didn't have much time. It takes time for that yeast to work through and the bread to rise. Bread rises over a period of time. So. Since there's not much time, and God said, put your sandals on, get your staff ready, your clothes on, get ready to book it out the door. You'll bake your bread tonight without any leaven or in haste so that you're ready to flee. So the Feast of Unleavened Bread commemorated not only the Passover lamb, but it represented the fact that after the lamb was slain, they left Egypt in a hurry. Now, isn't it interesting that the very first month of the year is the Feast of Passover? because that's where the year begins does it not on redemption your year begins with redemption your life begins with redemption just sort of like a christian who would say i've had a, several people come up and say i'm 2 years old and i'm 2 years old today it's my second birthday now i know they're in their 40s they go i'm 2 years old either they're nuts or what they mean And I know that's what they mean is that they're Christians and two years ago on this day they gave their life to Jesus, they've been redeemed. And that began a whole new calendar for them. Their age now begins in spiritual years in the Lord. So Passover was the beginning of the year because it was the beginning of redemption. You know what unleavened bread bread is, right? You've had matzah crackers before. Go into the store and you can buy the kosher matzo crackers. It's flat bread and it's cut in a square. Originally, it was round, they think, but now it's square and it's got perforations through it. It's a hard brittle bread and there's holes in it. Why are there holes in it? Holes were put in centuries ago to let air escape, thus retarding the leavening process, the uh, corrupting process. The bread had to be baked by Jewish law from kneading the dough to baking the bread in eighteen minutes because they timed that that's, uh, if you do it under eighteen minutes or up to eighteen minutes, there'll be no leavening, there'll be no fermentation that takes place. So it, it got to be quite an exact science as it is today. But it symbolizes the deliverance out of Egypt. And on the first day you shall have a holy convocation, verse 7, you shall do no customary work in it." And by the way, the animals got a break too. We read that in other portions of Scripture. You had to give your animals a vacation. It was their Sabbath. You can't can't just sit at home and say, you know, put a plow on that thing and just let it work. Let's do it Friday night and let them just work all through Saturday. No, he had to hang out as well. So your animal got a Sabbath. You shall offer an offering made by fire to the Lord for seven days. The seventh day shall be a holy convocation. You shall do no customary work in it. Now, before we get into the next feast, the Passover, as most of you already know, is probably the clearest feast that foreshadows Christ of any other feast. It's blatantly seen throughout the scripture. A lamb was slain, an innocent victim, a vicarious atonement, and the blood was put on the lintels and doorposts. Up here and on the sides, which was the form of a bloody cross. And the death angel passed over those homes. Abraham, when he sacrificed the animal, he predicted, saying, God will provide himself the lamb, the sacrifice. Isaiah 53 speaks of the Messiah as a lamb led before her uh, shearers, is silent or dumb, so he opened not his mouth. John the Baptist, when he saw Jesus with the background of Passover, no doubt, in his mind, said, look, it's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Peter in 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 18 says, we have not been redeemed with corruptible things like silver and gold, but by the precious blood of the Lamb, a Lamb without spot or blemish." The book of Revelation introduces Jesus Christ as the Lamb slain from the foundations of the world. John looks up and sees a Lamb having been slain in heaven. Twenty-eight times in the book of Revelation, the Lamb comes up. And so Passover foreshadows a picture, a clear picture of Jesus Christ. Now let's apply it. A Lamb changed the life of Israel, and they were to always remember that. Has a Lamb changed your life? Have you applied the blood of God's only Son, His Lamb sent into the world for sin, over your life? Oh, I believe in God. Yeah, but is the blood of Jesus Christ applied to you? Have you surrendered your life? Are you clinging, clutching to the cross of Christ as your only means of salvation? It changed their life, and Jesus Christ... First Corinthians chapter 5 tells us, Is our Passover Lamb. Beautiful, beautiful uh, figuring of Jesus Christ. Now we get to the feast of first fruits in verse 9. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land which I give to you and reap its harvest, then you shall bring a sheaf of first fruits of your harvest to the priest. And he shall wave the sheaf before the Lord, this bundle of grain, to be accepted on your behalf on the day after the Sabbath, the priest shall wave it. You shall offer on that day when you wave the sheaf, a male lamb of the first year without blemish as a burnt offering to the Lord. Its grain offering shall be two-tenths of an ephah. A fine flour mixed with oil. They say in is around a gallon. Depends on which measurement you take. Two-tenths of it or fifth of it. Flour mixed with oil, an offering made by fire to the Lord for a sweet aroma, and its drink offering shall be of wine, one-fourth of a hen. You shall eat neither bread, nor parched grain, nor fresh grain, until the same day that you have brought an offering to your God. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations in all your dwellings." Now Firstfruits was very closely associated with Passover and Unleavened Bread. It happened right after. So you've got a lineup of three feasts in the first month of Nisan. You have Passover, Unleavened Bread, and you've got Firstfruits. This happened again in the spring, right around March, and in uh, some of the warmer climates in Israel, you know, it's, it's very different. You've got Uh, 10,000 foot mountain peak in Israel, Mount Hermon, all the way down to 1,290 feet below sea level at the Dead Sea. You've got uh, Galilee 700 feet below sea level. Then you've got uh, sea level and the Shephelah Coast, uh, agricultural coast down below. And you've got a diversity of terrain in Israel. And so things ripen at different seasons. As early as March, the barley was ripened in many of the warmer areas of Israel. They would take a bundle of it wrap it up, bring it, and the priest would wave it before the Lord, signifying that I'm dedicating all of the crops throughout the year to God. And this is the first of it. This is the beginning of it. Here's the first and the best. Instead of saying, well, uh, let me uh, eat and grind for myself, and whatever's left over, I'll give it to God. Whatever I'm not using, I'll give it to God. After all, I've got my family to take care of. No, you weren't allowed to eat of the barley or of the wheat until you took this sheaf and first bound it and offered this wave offering and gave God thanks. Now, the first fruits is symbolic of Jesus' resurrection. You say, well, how do you know that? And it's true. You know, a lot of people will read things, read types into the Bible. This is a type of that, that's a type of that, and you can make anything mean anything. But turn with me for a moment to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Verse 20, but now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. So the barley harvest, it's the first, the dead seed has been planted, but it had life in itself and it brought forth life. And in that resurrection, that sheaf was bound and waved up before the Lord, a symbolic portrayal of the resurrection of Christ, the fulfilling of the feast. And as it says in verse 14, it shall be a statute forever throughout your generations in all your dwellings. Now we get to the Feast of Weeks, Shavuot, which is Hebrew plural for weeks. And you shall count for yourselves from the day after the Sabbath, that is the Sabbath after the first fruits. See, these feasts, are, you know, it's kind of like one after another. Their whole year was tied around worship of God. You shall count for yourselves from the day after the Sabbath, from the day that you were brought, that you brought the sheaf of the wave offering, seven Sabbaths shall be completed. Count fifty days. So you have seven sevens, Shavuot, seven sevens, plus one day, 50th. The first day and the last day were Sabbaths or rest to the Lord. Count fifty days to the day after the seventh Sabbath, And then you shall offer a new grain offering to the Lord." Now this new grain offering was not barley. Barley happened uh, months before, uh, fifty days before. "'By this time the wheat had ripened.' The barley had already been offered, but now the wheat was ripe. "'You shall bring from your habitations two wave loaves of two-tenths of an ephah. They shall be of fine flour.' Fine flour was always wheat flour. They shall be baked, listen to this, with leaven. In other words, this dough is going to rise and form a loaf this time. Instead of unleavened bread, now you put yeast in it and it rises. Some is the grinding of the barley, some is the wheat, brought together with leaven and it will rise. Two loaves from two different kinds of plants growing together into a loaf and you shall offer with the bread seven lambs of the first year without blemish, one young bull, two rams. They shall be as a burnt offering to the Lord with their grain offerings and their drink offerings, an offering made by fire for a sweet aroma to the Lord. And then you shall sacrifice one kid of the goats as a sin offering and two male lambs of the first year as a sacrifice of peace offering. The priests shall wave them with the bread of the first fruits as a wave offering before the Lord." You know, I I would love to to be able to see that, how neat it was, you know, the very first of the barley, first of the wheat, waving it, God, you gave this, it's yours, thanks for it. It's all yours, the whole year. It's just a great symbolism. Now I've been in Israel for a lot of the feasts, most all of them. When I lived on the kibbutz in northern Israel, when they celebrated the Feast of Weeks, they brought in bundles of uh, uh, wheat and barley bound up and they did these dances, the men and the women, these dances, uh, the hora, uh, they danced in circles and they were waving these things. The priest wasn't there obviously, there isn't a priesthood anymore in Israel, but the people would have these beautiful dances and these sheaves and their fruits and it was all symbolic of this is from God and it's he that sustained us and we're thanking him for it and offering it back to him as a thank offering. Then you shall sacrifice one kid of the goats as a sin offering, two male lambs of the first year as a sacrifice of peace offerings, and then you shall wave with the bread the first fruits of the wave offering. Just read that. Uh, verse 21 You shall proclaim on the same day that it is a holy convocation to you. You shall do no customary work on it. It shall be a statute forever in all your dwellings throughout your generations. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not wholly reap the corners of your field. When you reap, nor shall you gather any gleaning from your harvest. You shall leave them for the poor, for the stranger. I am the Lord your God. Now, the Feast of Weeks is called by another name. It's Greek derivative, Pentecost, meaning 50 days. After this Feast of Unleavened Bread uh, was over, then they'd have the barley sheaf offering, and you count 50 days from that, Uh, end of the Passover season, really, and then that would be Pentecost. Pentecost was the combining of the barley and the wheat together, leaven coming up and these two loaves. We see in the feasts a New Testament correlation just like Passover and unleavened bread, also with Pentecost. We know what happened on Pentecost. They were all gathered together in one accord, Acts chapter 2. The Holy Spirit came upon them and the church was birthed. And the first fruits, 3,000 people got saved. People not only from Jerusalem, but there were people from all over the place. Elamites, Medes, those from Mesopotamia heard the word of God and people from all, all different grains brought together, and the church was born with leaven. You read the history of the early church and you find it wasn't perfect. It had its problems. It was leavened, but still all together in fellowship. And then verse 23 is the Feast of Trumpets. It's the third, uh, uh, no, it's, not, it's the seventh month, the month of Tishri. And there's three feasts given in this month. It's interesting. You got the first month, and you got three feasts. You got the seventh month, you got three feasts. Why the seventh month? It could be a correlation, sort of, to the Sabbath. Just like you have a Sabbath day, you've got a Sabbath year. It's like the seventh month, the Sabbath month. Uh, And there was also sacrifices and days of rest, the Feast of Trumpets. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, "Speak to the children of Israel, saying, In the seventh month, on the first day of the month, this is Tishri." You shall have a Sabbath rest, a memorial, a blowing of the trumpets, a holy convocation. You shall do no customary work on it, and you shall offer an offering made by fire unto the Lord." Now, you're going to have a problem if you try to research the Jewish calendar. It's confusing, it's confusing because the names of the month change, they could be known by their Palestinian name or their uh, Canaanite name, they could be known by their Hebrew name or they're sometimes known by their Babylonian names. To complicate it even further, you've got two New Years, two New Year's Day in one year. You have the first month, month of Nisan, and then you have Tishri. And the first day of Tishri is, in the modern calendar, Rosh Hashanah, the Jewish New Year. You go, I'm confused. I'm confused too. Originally there was only one New Year and it was not Rosh Hashanah. It was the first month of the religious year and that is the month of Nisan. Later on it got changed as the first day of the civil year. Now if you really want to get complicated, read the Talmud. There are four New Year's Day and nobody agrees on which one is which. So just for your sake, remember the New Year began during the month. The first month of Nisan, the time of the Passover, later on through history it was changed and Rosh Hashanah came into view in Tishri, the seventh month. But for biblical reasons let's study the feast. First of all was the feast of the blowing of the trumpets. Two silver trumpets accompanied the children of Israel in the desert. They were blown seven times. Whenever. The children of Israel were going to march for battle. You'd blow those doot, doot, you know, however, I don't know how they tooted them or what song they did or Reveille or whatever, but seven times they'd blast the silver trumpets, two of them. they made a replica of the silver trumpets. If you go to Jerusalem and go to the Temple Institute, they'll show you a replica of those silver trumpets in the Temple Institute. Seven times would bring the children of Israel together to march as they were marching toward their new land. That's the Feast of Trumpets. Now. It is interesting that in the book of Revelation there are seven trumpet judgments. As God judges the earth throughout the tribulation, seven trumpet judgments are given, all preparing the remnant of Israel for the kingdom age as they march toward a messianic age where Jesus Christ reigns in the kingdom age with Israel. From Jerusalem. Then Jesus in Matthew 24 talked about his coming and he said, uh, the Lord will send out his angels and they will sound the trumpet and gather his elect, I believe that's the Jews, from the four winds of heaven, from one end of heaven to the other, and gather them together. And so I think that uh, the Feast of Trumpets has its prophetic implications in the tribulation period with the children of Israel. All right, the Day of Atonement, we've covered in chapter 16, but let's peruse what it says here. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, by the way, I'm going slow in this chapter because this is one of the highlight chapters in the Bible. You've got to understand this, do you not, to understand the New Testament significance of Passover, Pentecost, and the others. The Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, on the tenth day of the seventh month, again this is the second feast in that same month, shall be the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. It shall be a holy convocation for you. You shall afflict your souls. Now, it seems that all the other feasts are, you know, happy shindigs. They're having a blast, they're celebrating. This is the affliction of the soul, which the Jews have always interpreted as a day of fasting. You fast, you mourn, you contemplate your sins. Now, for those interested. It is Jewish belief that there are two days that are very important. They're called days of awe, yamim nor yayim. days of awe. Rosh Hashanah, the first day of Tishri, the seventh month, and Yom Kippur. The Jews believe that judgment is assessed on the first day of Rosh Hashanah, the first day of the month, and then executed or atoned for on Yom Kippur, depending on how you fared that year. But they're tied together. That's their thinking now. However, in the Bible on Yom Kippur, that's when atonement was made. The high priest was allowed to go into the Holy of Holies only one day a year, and this was it. La- uh, the blood was sprinkled upon the mercy seat, and sins were atoned for. Now there's no temple in Jerusalem. There's no sacrifices for the Jewish nation. They have no atonement for their sins, except there's a lamb that was slain two thousand years ago. He is the atonement for their sins. And so we must pray as Paul the apostle's heart was almost ripped out from within him wanting the Jewish nation to be saved. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem, which means pray for their salvation. They'll never know peace till they know the Prince of Peace. My page turned. For any person who is not afflicted of soul, on that same day he shall be cut off from his people. And any person who does not or who does any work on the same day, that person I will destroy from among his people. You shall do no manner of work. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations and all your dwellings. It shall be to you a Sabbath of solemn rest. You shall afflict your souls on the ninth day of the month at evening. From evening to evening you shall celebrate your Sabbath. Now other traditions have developed in Judaism on Yom Kippur. Let me share a few of them with you. Number one, if you're an Orthodox Jew today, you wear sneakers like what I have on, cloth sneakers on Yom Kippur. Not leather, cloth. Because leather was seen as a material of luxury. And so to afflict your souls, you don't wear nice shoes, sandals are okay, perhaps, socks, uh, sneakers. No pleasurable activities could be conducted or can be conducted if you're an Orthodox Jew. can't take a bath on Yom Kippur. Now, for a kid, you know, you'd make him take a bath because a bath is not usually a pleasurable activity to a kid, but it was seen as a pleasurable activity and you weren't allowed to do that. You would beat your breast on this day. Now, see if you can't fit this into the New Testament. You beat your breast. This is called the alhet, And you would shout, um, forgive. Uh, uh, or you would, uh, you know, I have sinned, you would say. I have sinned. I have sinned. And beat your breast. And remember Jesus spoke about the man who went to the temple, two men, one a Pharisee, one a tax collector. And the Pharisee said, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. I'm not an extortioner or like that tax collector over there, I do this and I do that. But the tax collector would not lift his eyes toward heaven but beat his breast and said, have mercy on me, I'm a sinner." The Jews would understand this, the affliction of the soul, the beating of the breast. All right, the Feast of Tabernacles is given from verse 33 to 44. It's the last feast. It's the last section of this chapter. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, the fifteenth day of the seventh month, so you have all these three feasts on the seventh month, shall be the Feast of Tabernacles for seven days to the Lord. The first day you shall have a holy convocation. You shall do no customary work in it. Now when it talks about a holy convocation, I'll explain how they did it on this day it must have been exhilarating to be in the temple on this feast. You shall do no customary work in it for seven days you shall offer an offering made by fire to the Lord. On the eighth day you shall have a holy convocation, you shall offer an offering made by fire to the Lord. It is a sacred assembly, you shall do no customary work on it. These are the feasts of the Lord which you shall proclaim to be holy convocations, to offer an offering made by fire to the Lord, a burnt offering and a grain offering, a sacrifice and drink offering, everything on its day beside the Sabbaths of the Lord, beside your gifts, beside all your vows, and besides all your free will offerings, which you give to the Lord. Josephus said of this feast, Feast of Tabernacles, Known in Hebrew, Sukkot. Sukkot means booths, or little tabernacles that you would build. Josephus said this was the greatest and the holiest of all of their celebrated feasts at his time. It was one of the three mandatory feasts, if you were male. Passover, Pentecost, and in the fall of the year, Sukkot, the festival of booths. The festival of booths was to commemorate the fact that God took the children of Israel from Egypt and preserved them for forty years in the middle of the desert in unusual ways. They were intense. God had manna come down from heaven. He had water come from the rock. They were totally dependent upon God as a young child was dependent upon its mother or father. It was a simple life. It was the life of a nomad. God was their leader. They were just, hey, wherever that pillar goes, man, follow it. Wherever that pillar of fire at night or the cloud by day, go for it. We just have to, we get, look it, it's desert out here. We just trust God. He's got to provide for us. And so they would build booths, literal booths. You can see it if you go today to Israel. It's another festival that's still celebrated. You'd build sort of like a lean-to and you'd live in it for seven days. You'd get out of your house, you'd take th- uh, branches, and you'd build a temporary shelter with a thatched roof. But the thatch had to be so wide, the thatches spaced out enough so that though you had a covering to keep you f- from the harsh sun, you could see the stars at night, a reminder that you were once homeless out in the desert. Subject to the elements, trusting God. It couldn't keep the weather out. Fortunately, it's not a rainy season during that time. And people today still build these things. You see them on the flat roofs of the Israeli homes. They would build them back then, even in the temple courts, out in the city squares, out on the streets, in private gardens. And people would go out of their homes, bring their kids, and they'd camp out. The kids would love it. They still do for seven days. God was taking care of them, and they had a holy convocation unto the Lord. Now it lasted eight days. The first day and the last day were Sabbath days and days of sacrifice and holy convocation. The people during Jesus' day at the Feast of Tabernacles would take branches, willows, uh, pieces of, you know, uh, uh, whippy trees pieces of wood, they would take it to the temple. And they would wave them and sing songs to the Lord, thousands of people. They would wave these branches toward the altar. The priest, for seven days, had an unusual ritual. He would take a gold pitcher. He would have a procession from the Temple Mount down through the water gate of Jerusalem, down to the Pool of Siloam which we can still show you, it's intact today. And he would put his pitcher in the Pool of Siloam, walk back up to the temple. And as he was taking this pitcher of water in a golden vase, the people would be singing Isaiah chapter 12, you shall bring, uh, you shall, we will drink water from the well of salvation. We, you shall draw waters from the well of salvation. So he drinks water from the Pool of Siloam, or the well. You will drink waters or draw waters from the well of salvation, they would sing. Then he would pour water on the stone slab of the temple by the altar of sacrifice. He'd dump the water on the ground and people would sing the Hallel Psalms, Psalm 113 to Psalm 118 in unison. And they would wave their branches again and they would shout. It would be a lot of fun, wouldn't it? Now the eighth day, the last day was called the greatest day of the feast. Uh, The people with the priest would march around seven times around the altar on the temple court, seven times commemorating what? Jericho, the walls falling down in Jericho and the march around seven times. Then twice the priest would go to the pool of Siloam with his pitcher. They'd sing Isaiah 12, you will draw water from the well of salvation, sing the Hallel Psalms and dump water on the ground. Now, the dumping of the water on the rock was for a purpose. They just didn't want to dump water on the rock. It symbolized the fact that while they were in the desert, while they were parched and thirsty, God miraculously brought water out of the rock and kept them. All symbolic of God keeping them. Drawing water from the well of salvation, God quenching their thirst, even in the wilderness. Now, with that background... It will make the passage in John chapter 7 very, very applicable to you. Jesus was in the temple that day at the Feast of Tabernacles. It says, on the eighth day, the great day of the feast, no doubt this ceremony had just been accomplished. You will draw waters from the well of salvation and pouring the water out. Jesus stood up and he cried out, If any man thirsts, let him come unto me and drink. Wow. What a powerful time he shared that at. A dramatic moment as people were looking to God who quenched their thirst. If any man thirsts, let him come into me and drink. And he who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. Man, I'd love to have been there during that time. You see the significance of that statement during that feast? Jesus waited for that day. It was the eighth day, the greatest day, the march seven times and then twice down to the pool of Siloam and the pouring of the water, speaking of the thirst quenched. Oh, you're thirsty? Come into me and drink. He was stating that he could quench the thirst of mankind if they would come to him. Two promises are implied in that statement of Jesus. Number one, I will quench your thirst. Number two, you will become a conduit to quench the thirst of others. Out of his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. Not only will you be refreshed, you will become a refreshment to others. You will convey the water of life to other people. This spake he of his Holy Spirit who is not yet given, John tells us in that passage. If you've come to Christ and you've been refreshed, the second step is God wants to make you a conduit of living water to touch lives around you. You need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And it's one thing to have the Spirit of God inside of you as a nice, tidy little package, theologically sound and set. This is who I am. I'm satisfied with my life. It's another thing to have the Spirit of God gushing from your life, touching the lives of other people around you, becoming God's vessel and God's instrument. Finishing up the chapter, as usual, I wanted to get through more chapters, but we've covered all the feasts in one fell swoop. That's good. Also, on the fifteenth day of the seventh month, when you have gathered, In the fruit of the land you shall keep the feast of the Lord for seven days. On the first day there shall be a Sabbath rest. On the eighth day a Sabbath rest. You shall take for yourselves on the first day of the fruit of beautiful trees, branches of palm trees, the boughs of leafy trees, willows of the brook, and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God seven days. That's what the people were doing in the temple as they would wave them toward the altar. You shall keep it as a feast to the Lord for seven days in the year. It shall be a statute forever in your generations. You shall celebrate it in the seventh month. You shall dwell in booths for seven days. All who are native Israelites shall dwell in booths, that your generations may know that I made the children of Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So Moses declared to the children of Israel the feasts, of the Lord. It's one of my favorite chapters in the Bible. It's so great, the fulfillment of the feast by Jesus Christ. Is Jesus Christ your Passover lamb? Has the lamb changed your life? You know, I was raised religiously. I went to church every week with my parents. I did the trip. I was not saved. It was all perfunctory motion. There was no heart in it. I wasn't changed. I didn't know Jesus Christ. I knew about him. But in 1973, the blood went on the lintels and the doorposts, and judgment passed over my life, and I'm a new creature in Christ. Old things are passed away. All things have become new. Moreover, my thirst has been quenched. I'm not looking for other experiences to satisfy my life. I'm not looking for something else to fill the void. The void is full. The search is over. Now, by the grace of God, I want to become a conduit, a line, a lifeline, bringing the living water to others. Don't you? Only God can do that. God wants to do that. Every one of you tonight, God wants to use. Every one of you. Well, don't I have to go to seminary? No. They looked at the disciples and they marveled that they were unlearned and ignorant men, but they'd been with Jesus. Have you been with Jesus? If you say yes, you're qualified. God wants to use you. Let God use your life. Come to the living water and be totally satisfied in a relationship with Jesus Christ, and then you want an exciting life, (laughs) become his instrument. You'll never have a boring moment as you see what each day God turns up for you, an opportunity.